attention deficit hyperactivity disorder it's not attention deficit you're not it's not you're not paying attention you are paying attention to far too many things that are going on i don't see it as a disorder i think it's a difference you know we think differently so i really you know resent this fact that people are saying oh god you know all these celebrities they just want attention and it's just oh it's so now it's becoming really overdiagnosed it's not overdiagnosed it's diagnosed Welcome to the Hurt to Healing podcast with me, Pandora Morris. I've been fighting an uphill battle with my mental health for many years, and it's only now that I've started to see some glimmers of light. As part of my own recovery, I've made it my mission to support as many of you as possible on your own healing journey by sharing conversations that are more honest and more raw than ever before. I'll be speaking to some wonderful people from all walks of life who will open up about their own invisible struggles in the hope that it will provide a bit of solace and comfort for some of you. The Hurt to Healing podcast is proud to partner with Shout, the UK's first free, confidential, 24-7 tech support service. So if you're struggling to cope and need mental health support, please text SHOUT, S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. Today, I'm speaking to Rory Bremner, the famous British impressionist turned presenter who made his name with his impersonation of Tony Blair, which was so near the knuckle that the then Prime Minister actually asked him to write his speeches. However, beneath the facade, Rory has always struggled with his emotions and admits to suffering from big highs and lows. He was diagnosed with ADHD while he was making a BBC documentary and described it as like having a brain like a pinball machine. He also referred to his symptoms as failures, which they're obviously not, but it's these moments that are the most powerful as they show a true insight into the way he struggled to come to terms with the diagnosis. In this episode, Rory speaks candidly about how he has learned to turn his ADHD to his advantage and why lists are his lifeline. You might even get a snippet of him performing. Rory, I'd love to start by asking you about what you were like as a child. So you've spoken about always being the classroom jester and being quite impulsive and impetuous. But what was underneath that, do you think? Oh, goodness me. Pain in the arse springs to mind. Um, I think I was, or mum, my mum always sort of called me scatty. I kind of sometimes think I want to go and apologise to all the people I was at school with or, or at university with, because, you know, if I was in a lesson or a lecture and um, I felt that there was a sort of long gap or pause, I said, oh, no, you've just got to jump in there, because, you know, I didn't like silence. But sometimes that silence could have been when somebody else was talking and I just didn't notice it. I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit. I mean, I wasn't as bad at that, but I think I said he was hyperactive. I think it would certainly be what's called now sort of those signs of, of ADHD. And I'm not saying that's because it's fashionable. It's because it's I recognize many of the symptoms, many of the way that I was presenting, as it were. But I, of course, you know, I just, you, you don't, you're not psychoanalyzing yourself as a child. You're just you. But I just was aware that, you know, sometimes I would overdo it because I wanted to be a bit of a jester. Um, you know, you, you would overdo it a little bit time, but, but, but you used to be un, unpopular. And so I just learned how to be popular. I learned how to kind of hone the skill and impressions was my skill. I could do that. And so people would listen and, and, you know, I'd find that there was an audience and, and there was a way of channeling my energies. But I probably, I think as a school was impulsive 
and lacking in focus a little bit. And if I look at my old school reports, I can see lots of things where it was, I think it was one who said, you know, I'm constantly try, trying to show the rest of the class how little I know. I think that was one quite savage report. <laughs> yeah, so I, I wasn't that aware of it as a child, but looking back, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that I was like that. But then, you know, I think it's very important that people with ADHD you know, it's not important not to sort of beat yourself up. I think it's important you know, once you discover what's going on, it's like having a set of car keys, having the car keys, and you can say, right, you're in charge now. And you can kind of, if you're aware of your behavior, you can start to moderate it. You can start to control it. It's not something you can be, you can cure, but it's something you can manage. Do you think you're aware that you were different in some way to your peers, or do you think you're just blissfully naive at that point? <laughs> I was lucky because my name begins with B, so I was at the front of the class. So there were less opportunities to be distracted. If I'd been at the back of the class, if my surname had been begun with a Z, then I think it would have been easy to be distracted. It would have been easier to just not pay attention. But the fact that I was at the front meant my ADHD became sort of the kind of high performing, high, high performing in the sense that I wanted to impress the teacher. You know, I wanted to kind of engage interact all the time and my interaction was with the teacher at the front of the class and not with my fellow classmates at the back of the class my most painful memory in school i remember we stopped playing we used to play a lot of rugby and the pitches were frozen one day and so we played football instead and i remember tackling our own center forward on our own our own side he was coming up to goal and i thought no no i want to score a goal i want to score a goal i want to score a goal so i pushed our own center forward i tackled our own center forward and then of course shot the ball about i don't know about a mile and a half wide of the goal and i looked back at that as thinking what was i doing and i think that would be classic impulsive i mean i just it was a complete rush of blood to the head and i kind of look back and i think that was just extraordinary so i think that was probably you know it was one that teachers and my fellow pupils and stuff would go oh bremner and it's unfortunate because that name begins with a b and you know you can oh bremner <laughs> so that became a little cross to bear and often people i've spoken to with adhd say that they can as you've alluded to, look at your school reports and see that in some areas you absolutely excel. So you'll get an A in one subject and an F in another. Was that a feature of your school career? Yeah, I mean, I loved languages and uh, I was very lucky because when I went to Wellington when I was about sort of 13, 14, uh, there was a brilliant teacher there called Derek Swift and he inspired us all. I was very lucky we were in a group of maybe about six or eight of us, um, a sort of subset of a class of 24 and O-level 21 of the 24 got A's in French at O-level and um, the rest got B's. He taught us Russian in his spare time and our spare time. He used to just fill the whiteboard with all these languages. He'll say, he'd say, as you'll remember from your Serbo-Croat and he'd write something in Serbo-Croat on that and instead of going, on what's he on about we thought god that's really interesting and he taught us there were all these different languages i think he taught us that you know the word mother is the same as mutter is the same as mer is the same as mujer is the same as mat in russian and you think oh goodness all these languages they all relate to each other and so that really engaged me and the thing about adhd is we put people talk about hyper focus but if there is something that really engages you and, and actually really captures your attention you become almost obsessive about it whereas the f subjects for me were maths and science i was really bad at that and that's perhaps because that was maybe that required more attention to detail that required more focus um, i mean i got through i got my got through my o level but was very glad to sort of leave it behind um so yeah 
so languages were great um, and maths and science were very poor. You have translated operas, haven't you, Rory? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard that you've translated. <laughs> well, I love doing that because that brought together, uh, there was a period in my life about, I think everything was about 10 years ago. It's probably 20 years ago now, or even longer, 25 years ago. Um, I used to go to the opera quite a bit and somebody picked up that, oh, you know, he likes opera. And they picked up that I did university, did languages at university. And they put the two together and they said, would I like to translate a Kurt Weill opera? And we did that for the Music, for the Wilson's Music Hall in the east end of London, which is a fantastic place if you've ever been there. It's uh, not far from Tower Bridge. It's along that sort of that whopping uh, road. And it's hidden away, really. And it was rediscovered because it was an amazing Victorian music hall with a sort of 500 candle chandelier. And they used to have those amazing sort of evenings where, because it was close to the east end of London, you know, people would come in from the docks and off ships and would sing like on a variety of nights. Uh, they would have people who were appearing at Covent Garden who would come out to the east end, come out beyond Tower Bridge and sing as part of the variety of nights. Anyway, we kind of reopened it with this production of a Kurt Weill opera. And um, I guess I'd always really, really wanted to do that. I'd always really wanted to translate a play or an opera. Uh, and it's brilliant to then see the whole thing take place and see other people, other people performing it. So the kind of the, your work, you can actually enjoy it. You're not, you're not doing it every evening as it were. And so that was my first one. That was a German one. And then they asked me to do Carmen, which is uh, obviously French, though set in Spain. Somebody once said Carmen by Bizet is as Spanish as the Champs-Élysées. <laughs> so it was a particularly French thing, and I translated it, but I translated it for a bunch of South Africans. And by the time I got out to South Africa, they I realized that they hadn't recruited people from South African opera societies. They'd recruited from the townships, which is brilliant. It was a fantastic idea. And they were with the real South Africa. They were with the people in the townships for whom singing was a job like any other. They could have been in the queue to uh, work at McDonald's or something else like that. But this was another job for them. This is a chance. And they it took off. They were successful. They came to London. They did an amazing performance of the miracle, the mystery sort of plays, which traditionally had always been the sort of craftsmen, traveling craftsmen, putting on these miracle plays based on on biblical stories. And they revived this in London. They were incredible. And of course, each of them was supporting a dozen more, 20 maybe people back home. But it also meant that my lovely English translation was <laughs> kind of put into Koza and a couple of South African dialects and increasingly became more and more of their production, which is good. Uh, by the time they made a film of it, it had become almost entirely sort of Koza and South African dialect. And it won a prize at the Berlin Film Festival, I think, called Carmen of Kailitsa, which is a township just outside Cape Town. So yeah, long answer, but um, I just loved it. And for me, it was the exercise. It was sitting down with a CD, obviously, of the opera, with the score. So you've got the music in front of you. You see where the, where the notes fit the syllables and the words. And a dictionary, and later, of course, a, a rhyming dictionary. For a long time, I thought rhyming dictionary was cheating. Then I realized that actually, you know, it's just a resource. You can't just decide, oh, I'm not going to use a dictionary because I know it all. You sort of think, well, actually, that's going to be really helpful. So you've got the score, you've got the, um, the music, you've got the dictionary. And then it's about really bringing it to life, but bringing it to life in English. And, um, I'd always loved rewriting songs. I mean, we did a version of Dr. Doolittle. Prince Charles had his 50th party, and I thought, what am I going to do? Uh, and I decided to do Dr. Doolittle, but instead of talking to the animals, it was talking to the vegetables. So just imagine what life could be if I could talk to the animals, learn their languages, give them all the nourishment they need. Imagine talking to a turnip, moaning to a mushroom. I could even talk in Swedish to a Swede. So I absolutely loved that, and to do the, that. So we did the 
German one first at Wilson's, then the South African Carmen, then I think Scottish Opera asked me to do Orpheus in the Underworld. Uh, then there was a play for the Young Vic, and then more recently there was a translation of another Kurt Weill, Bertolt Brecht thing. But I haven't done one for a little while, and uh, but I loved it, absolutely loved it. And it was really absorbing, and it took a lot of time, but that, yeah, I could hyper-focus on. Well, Rory, given your brief answer, I can I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't do brief answers. I'm really sorry. But the ADHD thing is fascinating. I mean, I can tell you about that because I, I do a lot with the ADHD Foundation and recently I had to do a conference up in Edinburgh. And I mean, the thing is, I mean, it's it's just, I mean, it's, it's a huge thing. More comedians have come out recently, um, Johnny Vegas, Sue Perkins, uh, and people all the time in the public eye, to the extent that we're now getting a pushback from the Telegraph and others to sort of say, oh, you know, everyone, oh, they're all going on about this ADHD. And and then you read the comments uh, online and people start to say, oh, I think these people, their agents just tell them that they should get some kind of psychological disorder to make them fashionable to make them look different or whatever and that's just so far from the truth because the reason these people are actors and the reason people are performers high performers or actors or comedians in the first place is because of their adhd because they have brains which on the one hand are not given particularly to sitting down and being quiet and methodically working through stuff but are on the other hand they they, they have our, our minds that bounce all over the place and make connections and don't have a filter. That's the part of your brain that is, let's say, uh, less developed or the networks that are less developed are the ones that stop you from being impulsive. So you are by nature, you haven't got a filter. And that's for a comedian, you know, you, you can be sort of very quick-witted. But for a kid in, in school, that's the real problem because uh, ADHD affects one in 20 conservatively. So that would mean about 600,000 school children in Britain, or sort of roughly one in every class, if you think one in 20. So roughly one in every class. And for an adult who's found a job that where it's an asset, it's, it's okay. But for a child who is in a learning system where it's all about sitting down and being quiet and paying attention, it's incredibly difficult. And seven out of 10 of the kids that are excluded from school are neurodiverse. So they have ADHD or mild autism or Asperger's, seven out of 10. And yet these people go on to be brilliant. 40% uh, of millionaires are dyslexic. More than a third of business owners and entrepreneurs, more than a third, have ADHD or dyslexia or both. So we're the risk takers, we're the pathfinders, we're people who have extraordinary energy and ability. And as I think as Francis Ford Coppola said, you know, the things that they exclude you for at school are the things they give you lifetime achievement awards for when you're older, because it's not that people are difficult. You don't choose, people don't choose to be disruptive um, and hyperactive in class. It's the way that people who have ADHD process dopamine. And the way we process dopamine is to move and we move around and we fidget. Um, I saw somebody did a test the other day. They were staring at a screen for 20 minutes doing a test where it involved really concentrating and staring at a screen for 20 minutes. And they said afterwards that during those 20 minutes, they actually moved their head by 20 meters. So there was 20 meters of movement of their head in 20 minutes of, of looking intensely at a screen. So that kind of hyperactivity is incredibly difficult in, in a classroom to manage the classroom. And also those are the ones that are easily picked up as well, by the way. It's easy to spot the hyperactive ADHD ones because they are 
by definition hyperactive but it's the ones that aren't um the ones that then pass below the radar people think that they're just thick or they're just low achieving and we're kind of we've got a kind of thing in society about beating up the kid who struggles um we're still like that in the sort of darwinist sense we kind of beat up on the the, the less um or those who we perceive to be less able um so you have a really really hard time in school so I kind of increasingly try to champion and try to help families who've got children who are struggling at school and keep trying to break these barriers down so that people understand that this is a thing. It's not hyper, by the way, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. It's not attention deficit. You're not, it's not, you're not paying attention. You are paying attention to far too many things that are going on. I don't see it as a disorder. I think it's a difference. You know, we think differently. So I really, you know, resent this fact that people are, saying, oh, God, you know, all these celebrities, they just want attention. And it's just, oh, it's so now it's becoming really overdiagnosed. It's not overdiagnosed, it's diagnosed. And when you think that 176,000 people in Britain are on ADHD medication, 176,000. And you know how many are on antidepressants? 8.3 million. We're not talking about an epidemic here. We're talking about something, I think, whose time has come. People are recognizing it. That, yes, there are, we, all of us have times when we are inattentive, when we're impulsive, when we're irrepressible, uh, when we're forgetful. We all have that. But the point is when it becomes really overwhelming and you live in a world where you're constantly messing up, you're struggling holding down relationships, you're struggling holding down jobs, all these sort of things. It's when it becomes overwhelming, when it really impairs your ability that, you know, you, you might want to think, well, look, why am I constantly restless, irrepressible? Why, why am I inattentive? Why is this happening? Um, and that might lead you to a diagnosis that finds that you are neurodiverse and then things can be done about it. That's when you get the car keys and you think, right, I know this and I can start to manage it. No, because I mean, as you say, there are so many points I, I would like to pick up on because I think girls, especially now who are ADHD, often ruminate and internalize uh, the hyperactivity side of things a lot more. So they're less easily picked up. Oh, yeah, up. masking. Masking yeah. happens a lot, a lot, a lot. Although, I mean, you know, statistically, it's supposed to be more girls, I think, than, than boys, I think. But my goodness, yeah, it's... I mean, teenagers particularly, because so much goes on in your brain as a teenager as well. You've got hormones as well, and you've got your brain is kind of doing this synaptic pruning thing where you're getting rid of the stuff that you don't need. And your brain is really going from the amygdala, which is a bit, you know, in the middle of your brain that just functions on basis of need. You know, I need food, I need drink, I need stimulation or whatever, to the front bit, which is the sort of cognitive functions and stuff so your brain is doing all that so yeah it's uh, it's just the, the teenage mind is fascinating it is and they're the ones who can't get the help at the moment uh, you know you may know and people who you've spoken to on this series accessing cams is incredibly difficult for adhd particularly you know that's if they don't know child and adolescent uh, mental health services i think and people can wait four to six years for an adhd diagnosis i mean that's incredible that's a scandal really is because you know these are the children that are falling through the cracks it's also the suicide rates because i think the impulsivity often oh. leads to yeah quite drastic action that's what I, I meant to say yeah I, I meant to say there is that i mean there's self-medication in terms of drink and in terms of drugs and there's falling in with a bad crowd uh, but the threshold for getting 
help in many cases of the adolescent for getting access to to cams the threshold is self-harming or you know or even attempting suicide you know from the system's point of view you know it has to be that bad before they can get um the help that they need and that's way too high i mean that's just that's a desperate situation but you know that's the situation on the ground that that uh, uh health services are i think they're quite overwhelmed and you know, this is something that it's not doesn't seem able to cope with at the moment so um you know just as we are finding out and, and diagnosing things i mean but there's you know there's a real crisis in our school children at the moment which i mean there's what something is going wrong something is going on because something like 40 percent of our school children now currently meet the criteria the diagnostic criteria for anxiety disorder I mean, if you think about that, so 40% of school children, and there are many factors into that. I mean, social media not being the least of those, because, and all the pool, if you have ADHD, all the pools on your attention. You know, we really somehow have to find a massive kind of empathy in our society to say, right, how can we adjust? How can we come up with a new paradigm? Come in, how can we come up with a new model of mel- mental health? which recognizes that people who are different by nature, they're not trying to be disruptive. They're not trying to be difficult. They're learning differently and they will in later life turn out to be amongst the most inventive, amongst the most creative. Um, And how can we keep those people mentally healthy and fulfilled and happy and therefore able to fulfill their incredible potential? Yeah, I mean, it, it's scary how long the waiting lists are. I mean, I, w- I was on a wait list for an NHS unit and COVID then happened and the unit had was forced to close. And I mean, the waiting list now for help for all of these disorders is just quite astonishing. I mean, it's years, it's not even months. Well, it's, I mean, the pandemic, yes, as well. Absolutely. That's another whopping great a factor in all of this. So, I mean, I, I don't mean to sound uh, downbeat at all. I just I suppose, suppose we must recognize the problem before we can, you know, find a solution. And, and certainly, you know, some of the people I've come across as well, you know, they're, they're on the way. They're finding that through some management and through cognitive behavioral therapy, through counseling, and yes, through medication, are finding that they can be their best self. This episode of Hurt to Healing is sponsored by our friends at The And Partnership. The And Partnership is a global communications business working with clients like Toyota, Mars, Coca-Cola and NatWest, as well as charities like the Princess Trust and RNIB. They believe that by bringing diverse talent together in partnership, they can transform the way that great brands are built. They call it the power of And. On the Hurt to Healing podcast, we know that having honest conversations about mental health can help us to see different points of view and to better understand ourselves. Just like the AND partnership's belief in the power of AND, we believe that by coming together to share our stories, we make ourselves and each other stronger. To find out more about the work the AND partnership creates, visit theandpartnership.com. That's T-H-E-A-N-D partnership.com. And a massive thank you to the AM Partnership for supporting my mission and showing what we can achieve when we come together. 
when did you actually get your diagnosis of ADHD for the first time? Uh, about eight or nine years ago, I think I was doing a documentary. And if I'm honest, I think, you know, I, I, I marked myself quite harshly because the thing about ADHD is that part of your assessment is it is subjective. You have, you're judging yourself. Funnily enough, this very day, I was just looking at an ADHD assessment and, uh, you know, updating stuff. And I've got one in front of me now, um, self-report. And it's how often do you have trouble wrapping up the final details of a project? How often do you have problems remembering appointments? When you have a task that requires a lot of thought, how often do you avoid or delay getting started? How often do you make careless mistakes when you have to work on a boring or difficult project? And this goes on and on and on. And, you know, if you mark yourself very harshly, very critical, as I critically as I did, you know, you end up, the next day I just burst into tears and I thought, why is this? And I realized because I'd spent the whole day concentrating on the failures and not concentrating on the fact that actually that same thing that makes me forgetful makes me creative somebody said it's they said it's not an anchor it's a jetpack (laughs) i love that yeah i call it my best friend and my worst enemy worst enemy because you know it's not fun being disorganized and you will be impulsive and you'll get yourself into scrapes and you will drop the ball and all those things but on the other hand you know you'll have extraordinary creative energy and you will make connections uh all the time and for me i mean even you know puns which are just so much of, you know, just it, it's it seems like it's speed of thought but actually i think in a speed of thought race the people with adhd have a, an advantage because we don't have that filter we don't have that part of your brain that's going oh is it appropriate to say that at this particular time bang out it comes <laughs> post-diagnosis did that help you move forward and did it help you manage it and channel it do you think more positively Yep. I mean, I haven't completed that journey yet. I'm looking into, I mean, I, mean, I think I would be very interested. I haven't taken meds up to now, except I took them for the documentary. And funnily enough, it slowed me down because I then went on and did a, uh, did some stand-up, did a stand-up routine. And actually, I found it slowed me down, which is funny because I think Robin Williams used to say that, uh, I think when he would take, when he was on drugs, uh, it would slow him down. I mean, this is how... The ADHD meds, things like Ritalin, was developed originally in the 1930s. A professor, an American called Bradley, I think his name was, he had a class where he'd noted that a number of the students had ADHD. And his way of treating them counterintuitively was to give them speed and think, why would you give hyperactive children something which is all about speeding them up? And it turns out that if the medication is speeding them up, then they don't have to do that by a process of them of being hyperactive themselves and of being fidgety and irrepressible and all the rest of it because the medication is is starting your engine for you if you see what i mean so there's a lot huge amount of my adhd that i kind of i i get it i understand it i embrace it and i enjoy it and also in what i do i mean because what came out of that being slowed down when i was doing my show was the fact that somebody said you know you well okay you may you may not take it when you're doing your shows but you might need to take it when you're doing your tax return and i spend much more time uh, doing shows than i do doing tax returns but i think i want to see for myself but also when i'm talking about it like i am to you i'd like to have more of a personal experience of seeing if medication can improve my offstage functioning other than that the diagnosis it just i think in many cases it doesn't necessarily tell you something you didn't know already 
I think often if you seek the diagnosis, if you're thinking about it, it's something that you've lived with for many years and you've got to the point when you think, oh, actually, there may be something going on here. And then you find that there is. And so you go, right, okay, now we need to move on. Now we need to think, right, okay, now I know what I'm dealing with. I can start to manage it in every sense of, of manage it in terms of, you know, try to avoid situations where you are where it catches you out, you know, just plan a little bit better. I mean, in, in childish school terms, it might be something as simple as if you're constantly forgetting sports kit, get a label and put a you know, picture of a set of train, a pair of trainers and a gum shield and whatever things that you need. And you put that on on your bag or in your bag and you think, right, okay, those are the things I need. Put out the things that you need to wear the next day before you wake up in the morning and have a panic keep your keys and everything in the same place in the house you know all those kind of things write yourself lists i'm obsessively writing this and you alluded to earlier to the the label adhd and i do actually think that it's quite an unfair label to put on a disorder because immediately it has negative connotations doesn't it when you have a hyperactivity deficit i mean attention deficit disorder i mean it's just not there's a big movement in the u.s actually to get it renamed <laughs> it's funny because people they then get to that there's also this world of labels and of naming and they go oh they've got a new name for it now it's like this world out there is saying oh you know because you call a, a bin collector a refuse um, operative or something like that in some way oh my god we've gone so woke why can't we well you know PC and woke, they come from a similar place, which is saying, well, let's try to be kinder, you know, let's, and in the case of, you know, do you want to label somebody as having attention deficit disorder? Or do you want to, I think this is where neurodiverse comes out and neurodivergence, because, you know, you're talking, you've gone from the negative connotations of having a disorder to the positive possibilities of having a diverse and a different brain with all of that all that that entails and all that that can bring your employer and increasingly now this is the exciting news is that more companies particularly tech companies are actively recruiting people who are neurodiverse or neurodivergent because particularly in tech companies and this kind of world minds that are different they want minds that i think that you know the people the, the elon musks and people like that uh, i think dominic cummings was wanting those in government and of course predictably people said oh god you know you're uh you're one he wants freaks and weirdos now well no he wanted brains that were different i mean i've done countdown a number of times and when i saw the the, the, the final the brains there and i thought these are minds these are it looked to me very much i could recognize that the people on the panel were neurodiverse i, I recognize that because you kind of instinctively consider recognize a fellow neurodiverse neurodivergent person but they were brilliant and oh my goodness i mean i was just in awe of their speed of their talent of their and you thought god you would want them in your company any day of the week and they would go on and do really brilliant things and yet we have a society which labels them as lazy newspapers as freaks and weirdos because they don't fit the sort of you know fluent paradigm of oh you know they're sort of a straight a student and stuff in fact probably they were straight a students but just the part that made them brilliant people um, didn't necessarily make them brilliant social butterflies or whatever you know they were they didn't necessarily socialize in the way that, way that others did so i loved them they were just fantastic and those are the people you know you want to embrace and say you know go on and change the world I'm curious as to whether it's affected your relationships because I know that you got married quite quickly in your 20s and and that wasn't didn't last 
And you say you've spoken about being very wrapped with guilt about that. But I'm curious as to whether you think maybe in reflection that actually the ADHD had a part to play in that. There may be things to do with that. But yeah, I, I get there may be an element of impulsivity then. And there may be an, uh, just an element of you recognize something and you you think, well, why why wait? You know, <laughs> this is, so I'm still very good friends with my first wife. We did you know, talk and get on really well. So yeah, it wasn't a question of, sort of suddenly, actually impulsively running into marriage and then regretting it. You know, we were married for seven years or so. And um, I think, you know, there was just that feeling of, okay, if this is, this is right. Why wait? And, and uh, let's kind of put the seal on this as it were. And what about friendships? Do you find it easy to sustain friendships? I didn't. Funnily enough, when I got divorced, I suddenly thought, "Oh my god, I haven't got friends." And and so, when I was introducing a new girlfriend, I thought, "Gosh, what friends do I have?" And then, funnily enough, during my the years between when I got divorced and when I uh, got remarried, I got to know people who are still to this day my sort of my best friends. And I've been very lucky. I've got many friends. I, I've got a couple of candidates for best friend, but the three very best friends i have all all died in the last four or five years my uh great buddy ronnie uh ronnie armist and i he's a south african and uh loved his sport loved his rugby loved his cricket uh he was such a wonderful friend to so many people he just was always remember your birthday you know if you'd have an operation he would uh, he'd be on texting the next day how does a vasectomy go he was brilliant and then he died of uh lung cancer having fought it for eight years my writer, John Langdon, who I worked with for over 30 years, I mean, he taught me everything I know about writing. And the last email that he sent me, and I sent him, we sent each other the same joke. Because <laughs> so we were writing for a project together where we had to come up with slogans, new slogans for companies. So uh, when the actual eventual show has slogans like, uh, Wix, our doors never close. Or <laughs> Pizza Express, when you need an alibi. Things like that. And uh, we came up with Sussex Royal, sussexroyal.com, air today, gone tomorrow. And he sent it to me and I sent it to him simultaneously. And that was the last email. He died soon after that. Um, And then the third one was Graham Cowdery, who's a cricketer, a great friend of mine, the funniest man I've ever met. He was just so wonderfully funny. And I could tell you stories about just things that he would do to almost just to amuse himself. I think there was a, a Kent, he asked Rob Key, who's now head of English cricket. And uh, when Rob Key was a very young cricketer at Kent, he said, Rob, could you, um, there's a lady in the crowd there who's done so much for Kent cricket, we'd love to give her um, a, a sort of special sign of our appreciation. So we've had this beautiful crystal um, piece made for her. Would you take it around and, and, and give it to her? So he went around the boundary and he gave this lady this sort of crystal glass um object and he got back to the pavilion he realized that graham had given him an ashtray (laughs) (laughs) so he'd given this lady a sort of very bemused lady an ashtray and graham sort of did it for his own amusement and when when i got married he was my best man and uh i was waiting for tessa in the church and graham as my best man just turned to me and said big moment raw they're going behind at lingfield and if you know about horse racing, it's like they're saying they're, start, they're under starters' orders. But you know, if he'd said Ascot or Newmarket, it wouldn't be funny. It was the fact that he said going behind at Lingfield. So you know, a big moment. But it was kind of something happening—the the start of a sort of fairly insignificant race at a fairly 
lesser known race course. Uh, he was just, he was wonderful. And so all three of those at different times uh, were really close friends. And, uh, you know, the sort of close friends who understand you instinctively, who don't judge you, who you just love. And uh, they are irreplaceable. As I say, there are people I've got, a, I'm very lucky that I've got a very good circle of friends, but I, I'm bad at maintaining, servicing those friendships because perhaps because there are sort of so many of them, but I, I love them all equally and um and they know who they are now how does it look your adhd i mean aside from the lists and the ability to hyper focus what does a day in rory's life look like Oof, no days the same really i think the worst the difficult the really hard days are the days with nothing planned that's a nightmare because that is just waking up and you see it's almost like if you imagine the tide has gone out and the sand is just, you think, oh, all that, I might go for a walk. And they say, oh, but actually, well, before you go for it, you could actually have a coffee there or you could do this and that. And suddenly the emptiness of a beautiful, pristine beach starts to look like a Jackson Pollock painting because your brain has started to fill it with all sorts of things. But yeah, the worst days are the days with nothing there. And the days where there is some structure to it, which has been posed from outside, those are the days. But otherwise, I have to, you know, I have to discipline. And when I was doing Brendan Burn Fortune, I had to write. We had to write the show, the entire show, an hour's worth of TV or 40 minutes because the Johns did the others bits. But yeah, maybe 35, 40 minutes of TV. I'd, I'd have two days to write it. And the only way I could do it was I would say, right, I'm going to do that sketch before 11 o'clock. I've got to finish that sketch by one o'clock. I've got to finish that by so-and-so. I mean, one of the lists here I've got uh, written down, you know, I've got to, I've got about 150 emails that I haven't, you know, over the time it's just left there. And I thought, I actually, there's a note here sitting there. I've got to go to 140 by 11 o'clock. I've got to get to 130 by 12 o'clock. But no, it's so interesting, the overlap, because I, I too, I have that, in my head, if it if I'm not doing X by a certain time, if I haven't done Y by a certain time, I get incredibly anxious and stressed. And it's that that whirring away. And as you say, I love that analogy of in a Jackson Pollock painting. When you look at an empty beach, it can be the most beautiful scene. But I think when that emptiness is, you're presented with the sort of lack of structure and the nothingness. While some people can just be in the moment, I think, quote unquote, neurodiverse people see that emptiness just as this blah it's scary it sort of instills a sense of fear and you want to fill it yeah and you think well you only think how do how do i fill it and then all sorts of ideas come in because you know uh as i say not that it's attention deficit it's that all sorts of things crowd in for your attention and of course we are an incredibly damaging adhd well the world is adhd there are infinite pulls on our attention and there are many of the most of those are monetized so you know that there is a reason these algorithms these things which control our lives ab absolutely in terms of social media in terms of the reminders the emails that we get the fact that you know you go and buy a shirt and they say oh, okay have your email for the receipt and you'll get the and then about two or three days later you get from a company and from another company and each time you stay at a hotel or this or that and so you build up as i've done and i, I know it's happening you just build it up 
all these emails and all of them are metaphorically tugging at your sleeve for your attention and and if you're sort of ridiculously polite like me that oh well, I bet, yes well or, or i think well that might be good for me so i'll leave i'll leave that one there or oh, that's a review that's london review of books article i must read that or oh, that's times article i must read that oh that's a conde nast thing i might want to go on a travel thing so i'm going to put that in a separate thing and then you find yourself with this silt of 150 emails, which I'm still trying to just mine, and basically probably a, a well-adjusted person would go, why don't you just press delete and just get on with your, with your life? No, I, I completely relate to it. And I think if I'm left to make a decision about something, I will literally, I mean, my head will come up with every single eventuality of what every possible decision, every route I could do, go down. And then I decide to go down one and, oh, no, it's the wrong one. So then I have to go down another one. Oh, no, and then that's wrong. And then I make the decision and, oh, God, it's the wrong one. So then I backtrack. I relate to that constant. It, it's just, it's that consistent noise in your head, which doesn't really stop. So do you have a diagnosis as such? I don't, but I definitely think, firstly, there are huge overlaps between OCD and ADHD. And I think, yes, I definitely have strong traits of it. And I think it's actually got worse as I've got older. In fact, they've definitely intensified my ability to leave things to one side and not to ruminate over them. It's definitely lessened. So I'd say that, yeah, it's just an interesting observation. I think was it, it was a Margaret Thatcher thing, wasn't it? She said, happiness is a list ticked off. And you sometimes think well, about that. And, and I might get through the first four items of things on a list and then part of me goes oh yes you're doing really well and then you your attention flags and you go off and then you end up the rest at the end of the day and you think oh damn i haven't done x y and z but don't beat yourself up about it that's the most important thing i think um, once you find out what particular characteristics you have how you how you are made up psychiatrically and you understand that and then you can you can manage it in the best sense that the you the, the parts which you find as i said which you find getting worse the parts which you find debilitating or impairing or annoying or irritating you can gradually recognize them as they come towards you and fight them by the coping strategies that you develop whether it's making lists whether it's putting things in the same place whether it's learning to recognize that feeling at the beginning of the day and maybe actually it'd be quite nice to uh, it'd be nice to have a conversation with somebody who said okay how how do you deal with an empty day you know let's talk that through and is there a better way to do it that's not going to involve you feeling panicked and anxious yeah i mean i sometimes find almost you have to schedule the time for spontaneity <laughs> well most ironic sense. well no i mean I, I that's not a million miles from talking about finding the time for friendships as well like i said you know where you've got, actually got to sort of say no you know don't try and flog your way through a list for the sake of it you, you know sometimes you need to find that time to be i mean it's easier on a day like luckily i'm going looking at it, it's spring day and i'm thinking you know i do need to get out and just try and relax for a little bit have you ever had therapy for your adhd no, I mean, I talked to a counsellor every sort of couple of weeks or so, and that's just very helpful because, you know, they they recognise my particular state, what, what state I'm in at the time when I talk. We kind of just take stock. They will just nudge me in one direction or another. But principally, I think it's to just be kind to yourself. So on a final note, what advice would you have for someone who thinks they might have ADHD? Well, I mean, I think we've given lots of uh, tips or hints with this. I think the question is, it's like with 
depression if people sort of say you know are you having a bad day or are you depressed i think the thing is if you have realized if you're at a stage where this is chronic it's happening day in day out it's happened for many many months many years and you're finding it overwhelming or whatever then it is something that you could consider looking into of course then we hit head on we hit this problem where it's incredibly difficult to get a diagnosis which is a something we have just got to address somehow as a, as a nation and in the cost of undiagnosed and untreated ADHD over a lifetime is massive it's one point i think it's 1.2 million uh, because of you know in- interventions and loss of um, income and all these things that for an individual over a lifetime that costs 1.2 million but if that's diagnosed and treated as a child from between 6 and 18 it's 9000 pounds so it's nine thousand pounds against one point two million. Those are sort of statistics that are coming out. I would say be kind to yourself. I would say you know don't beat yourself up. It makes you who you are. Just understand. I think that you've got to a state where you know you might, as part of being kind to yourself, recognize that you are in this pattern of behaviour, and it may be that you are this neurodevelopmental condition applies to you and and that there are things you can do about it whether it be seeking a diagnosis whether it be learning coping strategies and coping mechanisms whether it be list making but overall i suppose just find somehow to it makes it makes you who you are don't go to the other extreme and say i've got adhd deal with it and so it becomes everybody else's problem as it were i think just recognize that if you are constantly struggling there may be something you need to seek some help with and you know there are some resources out there there are also some adhd groups as well though that's slightly likes it if you know the blind needing the blind in a sense uh, that uh, you know <laughs> so the idea of an, AD, an adhd organization is almost a contradiction in terms isn't it but i would i would say be kind to yourself think about whether this is constant and debilitating and overwhelming and therefore you you got to the stage where you need to talk to somebody about it and you know maybe find counseling if you can consider talking to your gp about it and yeah have conversations about it thank you so much rory for taking the time in your incredibly busy schedule because it's been an <laughs> absolute honor talking to you thank you so busy don't, don't assume anything Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word. Mm-hmm.